interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Unfortunately, Graham was unable to host this month's episode due to work commitments, so we've put his nuclear disaster-themed podcast to one side for now, and instead this episode will be talking all about the year 2016. As part of our end-of-year review, we'll be choosing our favourite films and TV shows of the year, picking films that surprised us or that we downright hated, and looking ahead to 2017 and what promises to be another exciting year for the Movie Muse team. For this episode, we're all co-hosting the show, so allow me to introduce my counterparts, Gordon Sinclair. Hello. And Simon Burton. Hi there. And I'm Matt Corn. And our usual features have also been shelved for this edition, so let's get straight on with it. We're going to kick off this show, as Christmas happened just a few days ago, with a change to our normal routine and go with what have we been given for Christmas. So, Simon, anything interesting that you've had for Christmas? Mostly retro gaming stuff for me. The most exciting thing I got retro gaming related was a whole new set of bedding for my bed, which is Pac-Man chasing ghosts all over it, <laughs> which I wasn't expecting from the other half. The only TV and film related thing I got was the Pointless board game. Because, you know, I might have mentioned a couple of times that I do like a bit of Pointless. So I got that from my other half-sister. So that was cool. But that was about it, really. No real film related stuff. A Pointless board game qualifies. That's related to television. Should be good fun. Gordon? I got a Deadpool t-shirt from my mother. I don't know if she knows whether I like Deadpool or not, but it was a nice t-shirt anyway. But I also got a book which is called Film Listography, Your Life in Movie Lists. And what it basically is, is a journal for each page that you've got a nice little illustration on one side. And then on the other side, it's just a space for you to write entries into particular lists that they've done. So things like list your favourite films about social change, list your favourite movie star news stories, list your favourite actors, actresses. All sorts, and there's maybe 60 different lists for you to complete. So over the next year, I'm going to try and do maybe one list a week or something and see if I can fill that in. So I thought that was quite interesting. Okay, well, that sounds like it could be fun. Something different to do lists of instead of the 300 films you've watched this year. Yeah, and I could uh, also maybe put a few things on the website once I've filled a few in. Um, might give me some inspiration for articles. So, yeah, it's good. Cool. You get half a book, you write the other half yourself. Absolutely. Well, I got a few things movie-related. I got a lot of Blu-rays to upgrade some of my DVD collection, which included Pulp Fiction, three of the Terminator films, and the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. But perhaps one of the most interesting things I got movie-related was a documentary called Elstree 1976, which is a documentary about all the extras involved in the original Star Wars film, and they discuss their time on the set and how it's changed their lives since. Obviously, lots of them end up going to these Comic-Cons, signing photos of themselves, as people like Greedo and Stormtroopers and stuff like that. So that should be quite interesting. Sounds like we all got a good haul anyway. Yeah. Yep, not bad. Let's move on to our first topic for this end-of-year review. And there's a film that we were all looking forward to. We've discussed it on previous podcasts. That is Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. We've all been to see it over the last couple of weeks. We won't go too much over the plot. I think it's fairly well discussed. I've also put my review on the Movie Muse website. So if you want to read a lot more detail about it, you can go to moviemuse.net. But we're going to share our opinions now as well. Before we start our reviews, I should probably mention that if you haven't seen the film, there may be a few spoilers in this. So you might want to skip on about 10 or 15 minutes. We will also try and mention any potential spoilers as we talk about them. But if you haven't seen the film yet, I'd recommend you do go and see the film before you listen to this review. So let's kick off with a review from Gordon. I was very impressed with the film. I thought that it did everything right that The Force Awakens probably only got half right. And actually, after watching Rogue One, it makes me think that I was probably too glowing about my previous review of The Force Awakens. Because 
Force Awakens tended to just live off nostalgia and I felt that Rogue One didn't do that it played a lot of fan service but it had an original story which is quite impressive to say that we knew what actually was going to happen I thought the characters on the whole were better but the one thing that impressed me the most when we talked about the trailer two things that I was concerned about that I didn't particularly like were Donnie Yen's character I thought they'd just thrown in this kung fu character just because it's cool but I actually loved him I thought he was brilliant and also K2SO is that right yeah I thought from the trailer that he was going to be really annoying and just trying to be a new C3PO and I was completely the opposite he was almost like Crichton from Red Dwarf with his emotion chip removed I found him a breath of fresh air without being overly childish so he wasn't a Jar Jar and he was almost a C3PO so I loved it I thought the action was better than the previous films I thought the characters were better and the story was far better and Star Wars three and a half gets four and a half from me (laughs) nicely done Simon what did you think yeah I really enjoyed it for me it was the gritty sort of warlike film that you expected for what was effectively a suicide mission to get these plans the characters seem to fit apart what they were going to do. I've seen a few reviews online and other people saying they're not very likeable, but I don't think they were meant to be. There were these gritty people who decided just to go and do this mission that they knew were probably unlikely to come back from. I thought Diego Luna played that kind of intelligence officer's role. I think, you know, he couldn't be too engaging, but he just had to get on and he was doing his job and he was obviously, the alliance was in his heart. I think linking in episode three to four, and this is a side mission as such, when you think of episode four, the whole thing is to get the plans to get the intelligence from them and to eventually destroy the Death Star. This film fits in perfectly of how that happened. We all knew they would get it in the end, but I thought it's done very well. The effects were excellent. I agree with you. Donnie Yen's character was fantastic, the blind monk. I like the way he kept saying, the force is strong, the force is strong with me. I like the way he believed that's his beliefs and that's the way it should have been. And I just thought the whole film was well-constructed. The battle at the end was good. It did play lip service. It had its Star Wars moments. I liked Darth Vader being in it. I think he had to be in it. He had a big influence on that Death Star. He couldn't have ignored him. I wasn't overexcited about that scene, but I'm glad he was there. And I liked certain characters that have come back as CGI, especially people like that. I think it worked. And I just think it was a really good film. Overall, I would probably give it four out of five. Thank you, Simon. My bit's definitely going to have some spoilers in. I don't think you two have, but I think we'll be discussing a couple of things that are spoilers. I actually agree with quite a lot of what both of you have said, but I was ultimately disappointed with the film, as has already been illustrated in my review. There are a number of reasons for that. Some of them you would definitely say are nitpicking two particular things that I didn't like that really took me out of the Star Wars world and back into my own world. Those two things are firstly the decision to put captions telling you what planet you were going to. That's never been done in any Star Wars film before. It's never needed to be done and absolutely hated that. That was one of the things that really annoyed me at the very early part of the film where you're jumping from one planet to the other with some, I might add, really bad editing of the first 15 minutes and it's telling you what planet you're on. And I don't care what planet it's called. I didn't care what Tatooine was called in the original Star Wars. It never actually gets mentioned by name, I don't think. So that really wound me up. And the other thing was, as you've just alluded to, Simon, the CGI Grand Moff Tarkin. The role was played by Guy Henry and they CGI overlay Peter Cushing's face on him. And to a certain extent, it was done pretty well but my problem with it was it was overused there are a lot of close-ups of his face i think if they'd just done 
you know sometimes he appeared as a hologram sometimes he appeared on a video screen and occasionally he was actually in the scene but they didn't focus too closely on his face it would have worked a lot better that one thing didn't ruin the film for me by any means and the voice was done reasonably well but i just think they overused him and i think it was unnecessary there's other issues that i could go through but i'm not going to other than to mention what is the point of stormtrooper armor because now you've not just got people shooting them but actually people not only hitting them with sticks and seemingly killing them but actually i'm sure they got punched at certain points but you could say all those things are nitpicking and i agree they are to a certain extent they're all things that affected my enjoyment of the film but the main problem i had with it was the story which we knew exactly how it was going to end but i found the whole thing really obvious predictable and unoriginal i know you said that you thought it was original gordon but the whole sequence where they're trying to take the stolen imperial shuttle get it through some kind of defense shield and then land on a planet is just from return of the jedi so i don't think it was particularly original but i could accept that if it wasn't so obvious the whole thing you could see everything coming and there was no surprises in it at all people are always worried about spoilers before they go and watch the film i literally think apart from the possibly the last five minutes there's no spoilers in this film at all and yes it's obvious you've got to tell the story we all know how the story ends but i just feel like it should have been a challenge to the writers and the director to do something exciting and interesting in the film that would surprise you and i just don't think they achieved that so that is my biggest bugbear with the film i didn't hate it there's lots of good stuff in there the action sequences were brilliant i like the war style the sort of gritty sort of throwing you in the middle of the action i thought some of the characters were really good k2so and chirrut imwe in particular as you've mentioned but also the imperial director of security or whatever he was Orson Krennic, played by Ben Mendelsohn, I thought he was a good character, and I loved the way that they showed you the interaction between the characters in the Empire for a change, and how they're all like trying to get one-upmanship on one another. I like that they put the cameos of the X and Y-Wing squadron leaders from the original Star Wars in the space battle, and the last half hour was really good, but the story and also the two main characters, which I didn't engage with at all, I found no engagement with virtually any characters in the film, in fact, those are the two things that made it ultimately a disappointment for me. And as a result, I give the film three out of five. Just like you've agreed with us, I can agree with some of the stuff you said there. Definitely the overuse of CGI for Grand Moff Tarkin. That was far too much. It wasn't just a little bit too much. And I completely agree. There shouldn't have been a single close-up on his face. And you could say they were trying to show off with the quality of the CGI, but if they were, it didn't work because you could tell it was CGI. From a distance, you probably couldn't. And I was reading about how they did it, and it was quite interesting, some of the stuff, because famously in the original Star Wars, Peter Cushing was only ever shot from the waist up because the boots that they asked him to wear crippled his feet. So to be able to do the CGI for the rest of his body, they had to go through all these old Hammer Horror films and things like that to build the CGI legs for him. So it was quite interesting what they'd done. Faces are always going to be the hardest bit in CGI to make them look like they're real, and that failed a little bit. So that was a bit disappointing just the choice to use it so much but i've got to say putting the name of the planet on bothering you that much now that definitely is nitpicking i actually like it when they do that personally i didn't even realize they'd never done it before in a star wars film to be honest you know that's a personal thing but it just really knocked me and probably put me in a bad mood right from the start of the film <laughs> well and we've talked outside of this podcast about the film and that maybe 
because we watch so many films now and because we talk about them so much, maybe we overthink them and don't just sit back and enjoy them as much as we used to do. And I think there's probably something to be said in that as well. The key word there is enjoyment. I watched the film, I appreciated the good parts of it, the bad parts of it stopped me enjoying it a lot, to be honest. I think that was the issue. More than anything else, it was just the story just didn't engage me at all. It was almost like a documentary, you know, it's like, this is what happened, and these were the people that were involved with it, but you're not going to get to know them. You know, The Force Awakens, from whatever other faults you level at it, it introduced brand new characters, and within 15 minutes you got behind those characters, and I just didn't get behind any of the characters. K2SO was the one that I was most bothered about being killed and he was a robot so that doesn't really tell you a lot about the other characters does it but you know we all have our own opinions about the film I agree with you on some of those points Matt I didn't see Charlie I did I liked seeing it I thought it was a bit too much as you say focusing on Tarkin's face you could see the CGI it didn't move to like a real face I can see why they did it they wanted to just sort of prove themselves with their animation but one of the things that annoyed me was that bit in the battle when that small ship that came out of the uh, rebel ship and then it crashed into the side of the Star Destroyer and ended up pushing it into the other one and then they all collapsed and fell through the gateway and I just thought that was all a bit too far-fetched for my liking the point was that it was its guidance dishes that were destroyed it was where it had been crashed into not just that it had been crashed into yeah they disabled it Mm. um, but it all comes down to physics really because I don't know what the mass is like in space so whether that thing could move it or not depends on physics which I don't know enough about to say whether it's accurate or not I think you can say it probably is because if you just think about because there's no gravity and like on the moon a small step you can jump a long long way and I think it's the same there is that small impact would have a much much greater result so I can see where you're coming from but I'd probably disagree with that as being uh, negative I quite liked that they'd seen some flaw you know we haven't got enough firepower to destroy this so what can we do well there's this absolutely humongous spaceship let's crash that into it i thought that was a clever piece of storytelling personally yeah i had no issue with that either did you not like the scene with vader at the end then si no 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 i didn't mind that end scene that was fine it was the other scene that you weren't too sure about yeah, I'm yeah. definitely glad he was in there. I agree Vader should have definitely been in there. I think yeah. it would have had more impact if they'd just used him at the end and not in that earlier scene. I think if they'd alluded to him at various points during the film and then towards the end, I think Tarkin says a line like, Lord Vader will sort them out, basically. So you're like, oh my God, Vader's going to turn up and he's going to kick ass. And I think that would have had such a better effect than having him show up in that earlier scene. The other thing I think a lot of people have raised is the fact that the trailers had a lot of really interesting scenes and lines in them that aren't even in the film, particularly the first trailer, and that leads to the questions about those reshoots that were rumoured. And what I've heard is that the original ending of the film was different and it was reshot to be made more grim, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's the problem with a film like this where people want trailers so early and they want to start pushing the film so early that things are going to change. But we'll get to see all of those in the DVD extras, no doubt. Yeah, there's a couple of things in the very first trailer. The first thing was when Jin Erso is on the gantry and the TIE fighter comes up. That looked like a really great scene which just wasn't in there. And I think that probably suggests that in the original ending, whoever was in that TIE fighter may have been about to rescue her and also some lines that were spoken by Saw Guerrero in that trailer to Jin, presumably, about what will you do if they catch you, what will they do if they break you, which suggested that maybe she turned bad. I think those things, if they'd been in it, my interpretation is they might have made it a better film, but we'll never know. (laughs) I think that was a bit of a stretch. I think, personally, because I didn't like the story, I could make a better story that involved those scenes, even though I don't know what they were. A story with more twists, and that's what it needed for me. It was just all so predictable. 
which I find quite strange because apart from Han Solo, I don't think there were any twists at all in The Force Awakens. No, but I don't think it really needed them because... But why didn't that need the characters? This one did. Because this film, you definitely knew what was going to happen. When you went into The Force Awakens, you didn't know what was going to happen. And what happened was typical Star Wars. But because you didn't know what was going to happen, it didn't matter. This one, when you go into it, you know how it turns out. I just felt like I needed something more from the story. Because you knew the ending, I think the writers needed to put more effort into making the story that preceded it unpredictable. But the only thing you knew was that the plans were recovered. That's it. Yeah, but as I watched the film, I thought, there's nothing exciting going on. The first 40 minutes of the film, I would almost call boring. I find that quite strange because I watched it thinking, this has got really good pace and there's stuff happening all the time. But that's probably because I'm looking at it with a completely different view to you. Obviously, you early on felt down about it, whereas early on, I really bought in quite quickly. Yeah, possibly that's the reason. And also, I think I was affected by the fact that I hadn't read any reviews, but I'd heard that the reviews were good. I'd seen people on Facebook who'd been to the Midnight Show saying it's better than The Force Awakens, it's as good as The Empire Strikes Back. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, how good is this film? I can't wait to see this now. And then when it wasn't that, I guess that disappointed me as well. As I say, it was not terrible by any means. There was lots of good stuff in it. And when I watch it again, maybe my view will change a little bit. But at the end of The Force Awakens, I wanted to go and see it again straight away. At the end of this one i've got no interest in watching it again from a big star wars fan like myself that's quite disappointing yeah and what we will do is we'll do a combined movie muse review of it taking in the views of all four of us um, and that will be on the website hopefully by the time this podcast goes out so people can see uh, a more balanced view across the whole team <laughs> yeah so just to sum up our review, we're going to go round the table quickly with some nominations for various categories from within the film. So let's start with best new character, Simon. I would say it's Donnie Yen as Shirat Imwe, the blind warrior who believes in the Force. I think he's really good. He's got these skills, he's got the Force, and I like the whole demeanour of him. Same here. I thought K2SO was a good character, but he was pretty much just a sarcastic C-3PO. Chirrut was an intriguing character. He seemed to be Force-sensitive, but not able to use it. And I think, although he was a little bit underused in the film, and as I've been saying, none of the characters really engaged me that much, I would like to find out more about him. So a backstory, a movie or a cartoon or something would be welcome for that character, I think. Gordon? I think for me, it will be Ben Mendelsohn as director Krennic. He's one of my favourite actors anyway, so I was looking forward to seeing his performance. And I think he got the balance right of somebody with all of this power, but he was always conscious that he was losing control and that he might lose his position. I liked to see more of the empire and the political goings on in that side of it and not just what's happening with the rebels. So yeah, director Krennic was my favourite. He would be my third favourite character, I think, so I agree with what you said there. Okay, let's move on to worst new character then. Gordon? It's almost a um, carbon copy of this time last year when I was saying how I didn't take to Poe Dameron at all, which is a surprise because Oscar Isaac is another one of my favourite actors, but I just didn't like that character. And the same thing happened with Cassian Diego Luna. I just didn't take to him at all. And as Simon's already said, maybe he weren't supposed to because he was bothered about getting the job done more than anything else. But I don't know, it was just too much for me. It was just too distant. I thought his character could have been interesting. He's another one with an interesting backstory because he's not a straightforward hero guy. He obviously, he kills off his informant early in the film. Another spoiler. So he's not black and white like a lot of the Star Wars characters are. I think his character wasn't developed enough in the film like a lot of the characters, but he had a little bit more potential, I thought. Simon? 
This is hard for me. I didn't dislike any of them. I know this is going to sound absolutely crazy. For me, I think Genoso was probably the one I didn't like the least out of everyone. Just didn't like her character, her demeanour. I just didn't get her at all. Didn't really like her from the start. And I just couldn't engage at all with her. I know you could engage with many of the characters. And I didn't mind Diego Luna. I'd like to think there is a lot of darker side to them. They're not different. They could have had a good backstory to it. Potential, as you say. But Gina just didn't take to her at all. And even when she gave that speech... This girl's come from nowhere and she's telling all the bloody rebels what to do. That didn't fit in well for me. I'd have just kept my head down and just got on with it. No, I wasn't overly keen on Jin, I'm afraid. But I didn't hate her. Jin was another one that I was worried about. And I mentioned in the previous podcast that I thought she seemed a bit too posh to be this rough and ready girl and that she wasn't going to be a patch on Daisy Ridley's Ray. But actually, I really enjoyed her performance. We haven't mentioned this much, but I actually thought both characters were really well acted. My problem was they weren't very engaging, as I've already said. But my worst character was Saw Guerrero, played by Forrest Whitaker. I thought he was pretty much pointless in the film. He was a cool-looking character, but he did virtually nothing in the film to move the story forward other than just gave a message to another character. So he was disappointing for me, I think, for such good design having gone into a character to do so little in the film. And I don't think any of us have even mentioned him up to this point, which says it all, really. I think you're quite right, and I think I would be very surprised if he's not got a bigger part in the bits that have been cut. Yeah, agreed. Let's move on to best scene then. I'll go first on this one. It's pretty obvious for me. The end sequence with Darth Vader, which we won't go into in too much detail, but it showed why he was so feared in the galaxy, and it was really well put together. The look on the Rebel characters' faces when they saw him was really priceless, I suppose. I just think it would have worked better if it hadn't had the earlier scenes showing Vader and he'd just been used for that sequence, which is a bit of a shame, but overall, it was the best scene in the movie. Simon? My favourite bit was when they escaped from Saw Gerrera's palace. The Death Star is used for the first time to destroy the city and the wave of destruction is coming towards them and how they escape from that in the ship. They've just managed to get away. I quite like that and see the Death Star in action for the first time. It's laser running set to destroy a city and not the whole planet. There are some settings on it, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Gordon? Not specifically my favourite scene, but one thing I did like was the tropical planet because for some reason I just assumed that it was a tropical paradise where people were living it up on the beach, sunbathing and things, like a holiday place in the universe. But obviously it wasn't that, it was just a tropical habitat. So I really liked that and the scenes around there I thought were brilliant and really well dressed. But my favourite scene was the bit where basically Rogue One comes together, where they assemble the team. It almost reminded me of the first Lord of the Rings film, where the Fellowship come together. It looks like they've not got the support of the Rebellion, and it looks like it's all over, and then one by one people stand up and join them. And I thought that was really well put together, because basically Rogue One, they're not rogues against the Empire, they're rogues from their own rebellion. But at the end of that scene, K2 has one of his one-liners. And I wish I could remember it or find a clip of it because it really made me laugh in the cinema at the time. It's something along the lines of, I'm with you, Jin. The captain told me I had to be something along those lines. I I think it is, yeah. And I just love the way they've gone from this really emotional bit to something stupid. And I quite liked that humour that he brought into it. Cool. So when we did our Star Wars podcast in December 2015... We ranked the films that were out at that point, which was just episodes one to six, from best to worst. So let's revisit that. So, Gordon, do you want to start off with ranking the now eight Star Wars films from best to worst? Okay, so I've gone with A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Rogue One, The Force Awakens, The Phantom Menace, Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Sith, and Attack of the Clones in last place by a long, long way. Okay, thank you. And Simon? Can I just do it numbers or do I have to say them? It's totally up to you. Right, I'd go with episode four, episode five, 
3.576132. Pretty similar to mine, just Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith the other way around. Okay, I'm going to go with Empire Strikes Back, A New Hope, Return of the Jedi, Force Awakens, Jedi and Force Awakens joint third, then Rogue One, then Revenge of the Sith, then The Phantom Menace, and at the bottom, Attack of the Clones. So there's no doubt Rogue One's certainly found its place in the upper echelons of all of our lists, just mine not quite as high as the others, but that might change if I warm to it next time around. For this next segment, we're going to pick out some of the best films that we've seen in the year, and we've separated them into different categories based mainly on topics that we've covered in previous podcasts. So for the first one, we're going to look at superhero movies. Back in February, we dedicated a show to the wonderful world of superheroes and comic book movies, and we discussed how the Marvel and DC's extended universes were dominating the current and future movie landscape. And now, after the likes of Deadpool, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Suicide Squad, X-Men, Batman, Superman, and even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have fought it out for box office supremacy, it's time for us all to pick our favourite superhero movie of 2016. I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, and I'm going to pick Suicide Squad. I accept, technically, it wasn't as well written as Doctor Strange, it wasn't as polished as Captain America Civil War, and it wasn't as funny as Deadpool, but it did something different with the genre, showing how the supervillain is just as important to comics as the hero. And I also liked their Luke Skywalker Force Awakens-style underuse of the Joker, saving arguably the biggest bad boy for future films. So I was a big fan of Suicide Squad, not the best, but my favourite. So Simon, what was your favourite superhero film? The one that sort of stuck in my mind and that I really enjoyed is Deadpool, featuring characters played by Ryan Reynolds, who has played him before one of the X-Men Origin films. And I just like the character from the start of the film, his comedy, his sharp wit, the line delivery, and the violence is pretty generic. You expect that, the kind of superhero character, but the delivery of the lines, the actual whole comedy side of it, really stood out for me because it was fun to watch. It wasn't taking itself seriously, and it sort of brought superheroes into the more mainstream for me. So if you're not hardcore into your superheroes, you can, anyone can enjoy Deadpool because it's got a good comedic background and it's got the effects and it's, it's a likeable movie. So, yeah, really enjoyed it. I saw Deadpool and I really enjoyed it. I'm not a fan of Ryan Reynolds and he kind of has started to win me over with Deadpool. I also saw another film he was in called Paper Man, which he plays the same character basically, but he's an imaginary superhero in that. And then I saw another film with him this week that was Mississippi Grind and he was excellent in that. So I'm kind of being won over by Ryan Reynolds and Deadpool started all that. It's definitely the funniest of the superhero films. It's nicely violent. I know you said it's a bit generic, the violence, but I thought it was a bit more gruesome in its violence. And it's about time we had an 18-rated superhero film. And they did a really good job of it. The only thing that worries me is that they're going to ruin the character by trying to bring him into the other films like the X-Men films. And I think he should stay on his own, in his own little universe. Come to think of it, yeah, that's a good point, Gordon. Also, the other thing I liked about it is when the story starts at sort of at the end of the story and then it keeps rewinding back and showing you bits that lead up to where it was at the start. That was quite an interesting concept. I did like that as well. I agree with some of the points you've made. Certainly, it was more mainstream in that it probably appealed to more than just superhero movie fans. 
but I just didn't find it particularly funny. And when you took the supposed humour away from it, it was actually a pretty generic superhero film. I think I just didn't connect with the character. I didn't like the breaking the fourth wall antics, you know, him talking to the camera and cracking jokes. And a lot of people made a big deal about the opening credits, which they seemed to think were hilarious. And I watched them and just thought, yeah, this is a joke that's just wearing too thin straight away. So, yeah, just didn't really make me laugh that much. And when you took that away from it, it was not that great a film, in my opinion. I didn't hate it, but it was not as good as some of the other superhero films from this year. I think that's certainly fair to say. If the comedy doesn't do it for you, you're not going to get the film if you don't want that style of comedy. So I can understand why it's a Marmite film for some. Yeah, I don't like Marmite either, so there you go. Okay, so what did you like in 2016 superhero films? The one I liked the best was Captain America Civil War. I think, to me, that's the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film to date. It got a pretty amazing lineup of characters and actors, for that matter, battling against one another. The thing I liked about it most, I think, was that there was no supervillain that you know is going to get defeated by the heroes at the end, but instead the heroes are fighting each other, which gave a bit more of an emotional connection. Obviously, everyone's got their favourites. In our household, it's Iron Man. And even if you know no one's going to get seriously hurt, I think the fact that they were fighting for what they thought was right against another people who also were fighting for their point of view was actually a really good thing. The action sequences also I didn't think were as reliant on CG as in some of the other Marvel films, most notably the big fight between Captain America's team and Iron Man's team, which I really enjoyed. It did go on a little bit too long, but overall I thought it was really good fun. There's plenty of humour in there as well. And the introduction of Spider-Man in his first appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe was brilliantly done. I think Tom Holland looks like a worthy successor to Tobey Maguire. Let's ignore Andrew Lincoln. And the scenes involving him and Tony Stark were amongst the best in the movie. And I watched it again a few days ago just to see if I still liked it second time around. It was just as good second time around and definitely one of my films of the year, I think. I think for me, you said the uh, main fight went on a little bit too long. I think it went on a lot too long. It was an enjoyable fight, but at the end of the day, it was pointless because you knew no one was going to actually get really hurt. A bit like Batman versus Superman didn't really matter when they were fighting. So I kind of lost some engagement in it there. But it was a very good film. Yeah, I can see that point of view as well. Like you say, there was never any chance that anyone was going to get seriously hurt, although obviously the War Machine character did get injured and has got some rehabilitation to do. It was just a showcase where they've put all these heroes together and let them fight it out. But I think in terms of fan service, that was the main point of that scene and it was certainly very enjoyable for that reason. Okay, next up, we're going to look at animated movies. In September's edition of Movie Muse podcast, we covered all things animated. We talked about the early pre-Disney days, right through to the Pixar-dominated CG world. And 2016's been another really busy year for all the major players in the animation world. And we've seen big releases from people like Disney with Moana and Zootopia, or Zootropolis, depending on which part of the world you're in. Pixar returning to a beloved character in Finding Dory. DreamWorks bringing the trolls to life and even the Angry Birds and some X-rated foodstuffs getting in on the act. We also saw a couple of big anime releases with Studio Ghibli's Swan Song when Marnie was there and the surprise body swap hit Your Name. But in this category, I'm going to go for, no surprises, the Oscar-nominated stop-motion film Anomalisa. And I've mentioned it many times on the podcast before, not least my disgust at it not winning the Best Animated Film Oscar earlier in the year. So I won't go on about it other than to say that it's one of the most heartfelt films of recent years and continues Charlie Kaufman's run as one of the best screenwriters of all time. 
And you may be thinking that Anomalisa was a 2015 film, with it being in the Oscars earlier in the year, but it was only released in the UK in the first half of 2016, so that counts. I'm having it. Matt? For me, this year hasn't really been that good for animated films. Finding Dory, I thought, was enjoyable, but not one of Pixar's best, in my opinion, although it got very good reviews. Something that could fall into this category, possibly, was The Jungle Book, which I really enjoyed and was worth the entry fee for Christopher Walken singing I Want to Be Like You Alone. But I wouldn't call that a true animated film or even an animation live-action hybrid. It was more of a live-action film with just a ton of CGI, which I don't really think is the same thing. So that leaves, for me, Zootopia or Zootropolis, as you mentioned, it was called in the UK. That was probably one of the best ones I've seen. It had some clever character design, some decent voice acting, and a story that wasn't too schmaltzy by Disney standards. It wasn't as good as some of their other recent Disney ones like Big Hero 6 or Wreck-It Ralph, but it was a lot better than Frozen. So yeah, for me, out of the ones I've seen, that's the best of a fairly mediocre bunch for 2016. That's the one I was choosing, Zootopia. But I saw Finding Dory and found it just, yeah, it's just Finding Nemo, but slightly different. I didn't find it that good. But Zootopia was one out of the ones I watched this year. I enjoyed the most. Yeah, I like the idea of all the animals who are normally predators in the real world all sort of living together in the city and everyone's got different roles and they're all calm with each other. And then suddenly the predators start looking like they're killing off the normal prey, what they would be in the real world. And then it's like they've got to try and find out what's causing this. And it was just an enjoyable movie. I like the way they buddied up. A fox and a rabbit would obviously never in real life be near each other. So I agree with Matt. I said it was good voice acting. And like you also said, Matt, I think out of a year of not amazing amount of animated movies, it stood out. I particularly liked the couple of characters who weren't the main characters, which was the sloth that worked in the DMV, <laughs> which was the Department of Mammal Vehicles, I think. Not the guy to have at the desk when you're in a rush to try and get yeah. some paperwork done. And also the chief that was voiced by Idris Elba, who was a big buffalo or something. Yeah, big buffalo type. Yeah. yeah, he was fun. He was so good. He, again, he was good as well. The typical you know, police chief character what are you doing not following procedure and all that kind of stuff with Idris Elba's voice so yeah there were some good characters and it was enjoyable it just like I say I don't think it's been a great year for animated films or maybe we just haven't watched the right ones I think the latest Disney one Moana is pretty good and I've not seen Zootropolis so I can't say whether it's better than that but if you quite like your Disney animated films this one's up there uh, Dwayne Johnson gives a great performance as this god that loves himself and yeah I really enjoyed that not quite enough to knock off Anomalisa, but it was very good. Apart from just one bit in the film where the main character sings a song and the song she sings is so generic Disney singing that it loses all ethnicities from the film. And part of the whole point of the film is that it's supposed to be this South Pacific ethnic film. But other than that, it was really good. So I do recommend you give that a try at some point. There was a similar character in Zootropolis, which was played by Shakira, this pop-singing gazelle, and she just seemed to have no place in the film other than to sing the traditional there must be a song somewhere in a Disney film moment. So they need to get away from doing that. I think Wreck-It Ralph and Big Hero 6, neither of those needed a nice Disney-fied song in them, and they both worked a lot better as a result of that, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. Well, I'll certainly check out Zootropolis on your recommendations. So now we're going to move on to comedy. The term comedy is incredibly wide and actually quite difficult to define, with it being very much in the eyes and ears of the beholder. You've got the all-out comedies like Sausage Party, Ghostbusters and Grimsby, arty Emperor's New Jokes comedies like Cafe Society and Florence Foster Jenkins, or the more subtle offerings that meld comedy with other genres like Hail Caesar, War Dogs and Captain Fantastic. To be honest, you could even have 90% of the animated movies that we've just been talking about too. 
But for me, this year, the prize should go to Shane Black's 70s buddy cop comedy, The Nice Guys. It's a really dark and very funny partnership between Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling in a Boogie Nights-style mystery crime thriller that treats its subject and its viewers as adults rather than just throwing nudity and obscenity at them. That's not to say there's not lots of nudity and obscenity in it. There is. But it's just treated in kind of a an adult but a funny way. And I thought that was an absolutely excellent film. And both actors, Gosling and Crow, played characters that you wouldn't expect them to and played them fantastically. So if you haven't seen The Nice Guys, I really would recommend it. Funnily enough, I was going to watch that last night and instead watched another comedy film that we'll be getting on to momentarily, I suspect. OK, why don't you tell us what was your favourite comedy film then, Matt? Well, I've found that I've watched hardly any new comedy films this year, and I'm ashamed to admit that the funniest film that I've seen that was marketed as a comedy, which is the one I watched last night, was Grimsby. But that was awful. I mean, it did make me laugh. There's bits that made me laugh out loud, but they're they're counterpointed by scenes that are so bad that I just feel ashamed to have laughed at the scenes that preceded them. So I'm not choosing that. I'm going to go for a film which was not a comedy but definitely had some funny moments, which was Eddie the Eagle, the biopic of Eddie the Eagle Edwards, the British ski jumper. As well as having the funny moments, it was a good feel-good film with a good message that sometimes your dreams don't have to be as big as winning, just the taking part can be the limit of your achievement and you can be happy with that. I think Taron Egerton, who I also watched in Kingsman this year, although that was a film from 2015, he continued to impress me with his performance as Eddie the Eagle. Hugh Jackman was also great as his trainer, but the best character for me was undoubtedly Eddie's mum, who was played by Joe Hartley, and she was the kind of mum that every optimist sports person would want behind them to keep pushing them in the right direction so I think she did a great job there it may not have been very true to the facts about Eddie the Eagle's career and it may not have been packed with laughs but it was certainly funny and I really enjoyed it as a great film I'd absolutely call that a comedy most of what happened was comedy rather than biography I really enjoyed that film I know we talked about it on one of the other podcasts and we've put a review on the website as well but yeah that was a great film Simon what do you think well, I'm going to have to fall into the trap that Matt almost fell into. I haven't really watched many comedies this year, not 2016 comedies anyway. And the only one that suddenly sticks in my mind, for quite a few reasons, is what Matt said, it's Grimsby. I've always quite liked Sasha Baron Cohen. I think his character's a bit hit and miss sometimes, but on the whole, I was always making me laugh quite a lot. I've listened to Days of Ali G and bits and pieces, and I actually like Grimsby. I... It is awful in a lot of places, and it's cringing, but it's a typical sort of British-type comedy. It's got people like Johnny Vegas and Ricky Thompson in it, and I like the action bits. I like the way it treats you like a Bond thing when it's the MI6 side of it, and it is very gross and base in a lot of its humour, but I was completely expecting it to be like, oh, my God, what the hell is this? This is dreadful. And I suppose, in a way, it was, but it made me laugh a lot, so I think that's the point of the film. Definitely worth people to to look at it just to make their own opinions because it's, you know, it's a typical Baron Cohen sort of vehicle. He sets out to shock even more than some of these other films. But I don't know, there was just something about it. I just quite enjoyed watching it. Some of the scenes I'm thinking about now, I want to laugh because it's just so bad and good at the same time. I can't really recommend it, to be honest, because a lot of people would think what a load of old shit. But I don't know, just made me laugh a lot, which I suppose is the point. The biggest issue with what you've just said there is that it's typically British. That's quite a depressing thought, if that's what a typical British comedy is. I found it absolutely deplorable, the whole film. I'm not saying I didn't laugh at a couple of points, but as Matt said, 
then a scene will come on that will just make you feel embarrassed for laughing earlier. It was just awful, in my opinion. <laughs> and uh, I think I hated it far more than both of you. This is Sasha Baron Cohen in a nutshell. He just tries to push things so far. It doesn't even apply to the gross scenes, of which there are numerous in this film. Everything he tries to do, he tries to push it that little bit far. So a joke will start out as a funny joke, and then he'll push it so far that it just becomes tiresome. It's like he needs someone to stop him pushing, if you know what I mean. There's no one there to tell him this is too much. Or maybe he just wants to see how far he can push it before somebody kills him, you know. It's just bizarre. There are scenes in that film that I wish I could wipe from my memory. But on the flip side, I think if someone had cut back those scenes, it wouldn't have been a bad film because it's actually running through. It had quite a nice story about how his character had sacrificed his own happiness so that his brother could have a good life by being adopted by someone. That was quite a nice story in the middle of it. But then around it, you've got two blokes hiding in an elephant's vagina and one of them sucking poison out the other one's testicles, you know. So I don't know. It's just... What can you I, say? I think the biggest problem with the film, like you say, it's Sasha Baron Cohen. For a start, he's a terrible actor and he overdoes his character to the point where I found it excruciating to watch him. But like you say, it's not a bad story and it could have been a reasonable film. There is probably a good film in there trying to get out, but it's just hidden by all of the crap. For our final category in this section, we've got a catch-all for all of the drama, action, disaster, biopic, period, war, documentary, and any other categories that don't fit into the ones that have gone. And whilst it's pretty hard to narrow down, I'm going to go for the heartwarming tale of a troubled teen and his unwitting foster dad on the run in the New Zealand wilderness in The Hunt for the Wilder People. It features Sam Neill in easily his best performance since Jurassic Park and a fantastically stupid performance by newcomer Julian Dennison as the chubby-faced wannabe gangster rapper Ricky in the kind of wacky but heartfelt comedy that only the Aussies and the Nozzies can come up with. Okay, so Simon. One film that stood out for me, it's horror in its premise, but I didn't find it very horrifying, but I found it the suspense and the sense of them trying to escape was really interesting. And that's 10 Cloverfield Lane. Because it's got the word Cloverfield in it, you obviously think it's going to be linked, and it is sort of technically linked with the original Cloverfield. It stars John Goodman, Meredith with Winstead, and John Gallagher Jr. And it's the interaction between John Goodman's characters and the two guys that are sort of he's kept prisoner. At the first, you think he's doing them a favour. He rescues her from a car crash. You think, oh, that's nice. And then suddenly realise that gradually things start to turn bad and you just think, hold on a second, not sure how this is going to pan out. And it's just an interesting concept. And eventually, obviously, the story unfolds and you know Cloverfield is happening somewhere else. You don't know whether he's just saying that at the start or it is actually happening. You're never sure. But yeah, no, just the way it was done, the, the suspense, the way he got this bunker built, just very well done. It was a very suspenseful and a very interesting film. I agree, Si. Really good film. It was just so tense. You know, she doesn't know, is something happening or is this just a madman holding me? And you don't know either. And the tension of that and when she's trying to escape and it just builds up so, so well. I was disappointed with the very end of the film, but it was really good. The disappointment wasn't enough to make it a bad film. It was still one of the best films of the year. Matt, what about you? I've gone for another biopic of a famous Olympian, but this one's a little bit more serious. It's the film Race which tells the story of Jesse Owens and his record-breaking haul of four gold medals in one of the most hostile environments imaginable for a black man, the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And it's an amazing real-life story, obviously, and interesting to see some of the politics that were going on in the background while Owens himself just wanted to race. 
I also like that it showed that he was by no means a perfect person himself. He had a pretty bad attitude towards training at times and he was having affairs and things like that. So it doesn't paint him as a real hero, just as a normal guy who just happened to be one of the best runners of his era. Stephen James does well enough as Owens and there's some good supporting roles from Jeremy Irons and William Hurt. But the standout performance for me was Jason Sudeikis, if that's how you say his name, as Owens' coach. And for a guy who's mostly starred in mediocre comedy films and the occasional TV show, this was a real step out of his comfort zone and he was quite impressive, I thought. It wasn't really that exciting a film. It was very true to the facts, didn't seem to glorify the story a lot. But it was great just to see that story being told and to see Owens doing his thing and embarrassing the Nazis. Now we move on to the most surprising film section, which is, you know, the amount of films we watch every year. There's some films you've got a preconception that it's going to be good or bad, and then obviously it surprises you. So the most surprising film for me this year was an animated movie called The Angry Birds Movie. And this is based on a game that's made for your phone. I've played it and it's quite an interesting concept when you're these birds and you've been invaded by these pigs and you've got to destroy their towers and bits and pieces and try and destroy the pigs. To make a movie out of it, I thought, well, you know, <laughs> what's that going to be about? And to be absolutely honest, I really enjoyed the film. The different characters of the birds, they try to match up the different birds to what you think they're like in the game. And I just found it interesting. The birds live their happy life, getting on. They introduce the characters of the birds and their interaction within their society one guy is very very angry and he has to go to therapy and all that to blend in and it's a bit shunned and then suddenly these pigs turn up and then it goes from there and it captures what the game is about but pans it out into a film and you know i went in absolutely thinking well you know how can they do this and i was really surprised by it to just take a game which is a very basic touchscreen game for your phone and turn it into a film i thought it actually did a really good job Probably not the best animated movie ever, but it was engaging and going right through with the action scenes and the way it finishes, it was really interesting. So, yeah, a very surprising film for myself. Matt, what film sort of surprised you this year? The one that's most surprising for me is a film I went to see at the cinema just a couple of weeks ago, which is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Now, we did cover this in the Coming Soon section in a previous podcast, and I said that I was going to see it mainly because my wife wanted to see it because she's a big Harry Potter fan and it looked interesting but I wasn't really expecting to like it as much as I did I was not a big fan of Harry Potter the good films but not anything that I really would watch over and over again but to me this surpassed all of those films and it was like a Harry Potter film for grown-ups They'd moved into this world set in the 1920s in New York. All grown-up characters, there's a couple of kids in it, but kids are certainly not the focus of the film. And I found all the characters quite engaging. Virtually all the acting was excellent. You would expect Eddie Redmayne to be pretty good based on some of the other work he's done, and he certainly was as the nervous Newt Scamander. But the real standout for me was Dan Fogler, who was the nomad, which is the American version of a muggle, if you haven't watched the film yet, called Jacob Kowal. This guy previously has mostly starred in lowbrow screwball comedies. How he got this role, I don't know, but he was excellent as a man who has been exposed to the magical world for the first time. He approached things, you know, with the wonderment that any normal human being would at being exposed to these things. I also love the character of Queenie Goldstein, who was the mind-reading witch played by Alison Sudol. She brought unexpected sexiness to the film, which I never thought would happen in this type of film because it is still being marketed as a film for Harry Potter fans. But as I said, it's a much more grown-up film. It was probably a little bit long, and considering the title of the film, the sequences with the beasts were actually not the best bits. They were a bit overdone and featured a bit of dodgy CGI at times, but the scenes which were just with the adult characters interacting with one another, I thought were brilliant. And I'm really looking forward to more films taking place in this era of J.K. Rowling's World of Magic. 
I've watched Fantastic Beasts and I would probably disagree with quite a bit of what you just said there. I found it not very grown up at all. It felt like a Harry Potter film with older characters. I didn't find the way it was told any more adult than any of the Harry Potter films. I found the first hour to be pretty dull. And it felt like the first hour was just trying to show off the CGI of the Fantastic Beasts and none of them were engaging. Well, sorry, there's one that's like a duckbill platypus kind of creature that was slightly engaging. And you can understand kids wanting one of those as a pet and buying the toys. But all of the others were just throwaway, trying to be clever creatures. So I didn't find that any fun the first hour. But the second hour I really enjoyed. And you're absolutely right to call out Kowalski. And what I liked about him was he did a bit of the slapstick stuff, but he put a lot of heart into the character as well. And you believed the emotions he was going through. I really enjoyed his performance. I did like the setting. I liked the, was it 1920s New York or something like that? I really liked it and it looked good. They did a good job of the dressing of the sets. The CGI kind of ruined it for me in a lot of places, but it's definitely worth it for the second half. The second half of the film was good enough to make it worthwhile, but that first hour was a real drag. So I was mildly disappointed with the film, if I'm honest. Fair enough. Although, actually, we did agree on quite a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Because I was saying that the beasts were the worst part of it. Thanks then, Matt. Gordon, what did you see this year? That threw a bit of surprise towards you. Well, I was a little bit torn on this one, and I very nearly went for Keanu, which is a buddy cop kitten rescue comedy thriller starring a double act best known for sketches on Saturday Night Live. That's a really good film, and I'd recommend that. But the film that surprised me the most was Central Intelligence with Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson. I was expecting it to be a low-rent bad boys crossed with Rush Hour, and for the most part, that's exactly what it is. But it was Dwayne Johnson's super camp character that was so far from what I was expecting from him, and it really made the film. Hart and Johnson played the absolute opposite characters of what you were expecting, and they created a new pairing in their own right, rather than just copying Smith and Lawrence or Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. I can see them making more films with these two in and seeing interviews with them off screen as well. They seem to be really good friends. And I think that often helps with this kind of film is if they are good mates off camera and you know that they're winding each other up all the time on set. So it was a really, really good film. And it definitely proved that all you need for a good buddy cop movie is a little heart and a big Johnson. That sounds like something that might have come from the tagline. Doesn't it? I might have read my poster <laughs> somewhere. So we've talked about a lot of films that we've really enjoyed in 2016, and we've also touched on a few that weren't quite so well received. So let's look at the bottom of the barrel. Let's have a look at the worst film of the year. Matt, what has really got your go this year? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Grimsby was pretty bad, but my absolute rock-bottom film for 2016 is Sausage Party, the R-rated animated film about a bunch of items from a supermarket, food items, that find out that they're not going to a better place when they leave the supermarket, but are actually going to get eaten. It was absolutely dreadful. The big names involved with this, like Seth Rogen and Edward Norton in particular, should be absolutely ashamed of being involved with this film. I think every single line spoken in the film seemed to have to have an expletive in it, and the constant crude sexual references and attempts to mock or offend minorities were just embarrassing. The saddest thing about it is, I think, if it hadn't been an R-rated film and just been like Toy Story but with food items instead of toys, it wouldn't have been that bad a film. There were a couple of moments in it where you could see it might not have been that bad were it not for the fact that literally every line in the film had to have a swear word in. Some of the characters they came up with, like the douche character in particular, was just absolutely awful. Every second he was on the screen was just a head-in-the-hands moment. 
So yeah, awful. I agree with absolutely everything you've said there. There were points where you listened to the dialogue and you were thinking, why have they thrown those swear words in there? Swear word doesn't belong in that line. It was so embarrassing. And I completely agree that they should be embarrassed by it, the people who were in it. But I suppose they'll get the big check in the bank account and they won't be too bothered. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can accept people like Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd being in it to a certain extent because they do those screwball kind of comedies live action anyway. But Edward Norton... What was he thinking? How did they sell it to him that he's going to play a bagel? And he thought, this is a good thing that I want to be involved with. It was just embarrassing. Sai, anything to add about Sausage Party? I quite like animated movies anyway. So I thought, well, I've got to give this a fair crack of the wit. But I went all the way through it, and it's only that scene towards the end that really hit home for me. That what the hell is this about? Is this the whole film just made to lead up to that scene at the end? Which I'm not going to say on the podcast, but you know what I'm talking about. It was just crazy. It could have been a really good concept if you just take all the adult themes out and try and make it a fun thing again and make it more family orientated. I just didn't get it as an adult film. Just make it a nice thing and have food not bad and, you know, they want to get to an outside world. You can see how it works, but just cut all the immature trash out of it. Yeah, because it was just Toy Story, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. So, you know, it was a big shame. Simon, what about you then? What was your worst film of the year? Well, I had high hopes for this. When it was first mooted, it was going to involve the original cast and it was going to be different. They did appear in the film, but not as was originally intended due to circumstances and what's happened. So my worst film is Ghostbusters. I know there was a lot of controversy about them choosing female lead roles. To me, that didn't make any difference at all. I just wanted a Ghostbusters film that is something that comes back from the old films. It was originally going to be that they train up new recruits and it go on from there, which is fine. Then it turned around that they're going to just reboot it from the start what killed it for me was it was a reboot but it wasn't it wasn't it's trying to be the same again but just a, such a poor reversion of what it was already gone before i just think it was an utterly utterly pointless film to make try and do a reboot that is a follow-on from what happened in the past and make it different and it's come back and you're ghost again and zool's made a reappearance or whatever and have new people trying to stop them but it just wasn't a good film the yeah, only redeeming feature I liked the dialogue I thought was good I liked the, the interaction between the characters were all pretty sharp and there was some good dialogue and I did laugh in a few places but the ending was just too easy it was just uh, I don't know the Marshmallow Man should have been used a lot better than that and I just wasn't happy at all so I just think it was a poor poor film I didn't see the actual point of remaking it to try to be Ghostbusters again I think that's the problem. There's so much scope for our Ghostbusters universe. They just dismissed any opportunity to expand what's gone before and just decided to remake it and then claim it's not a remake and then do a trailer that tells you it's 30 years later, but then not explain anything in the film itself of why nobody remembers 30 years ago we used to have Ghostbusters. It just didn't make sense as a concept and it was a very, very poor script. And it's disappointing that with a lot of people, you can't say it's a bad film without being a misogynist. It's only because it's got women leads why you don't like it. And that's not true at all, because I don't like Melissa McCarthy one bit, but I actually didn't mind her in that film. But it was just an awful, awful film. One of the worst criticisms is I went to see it at the cinema with my girlfriend and less than halfway through, she got up, said to me, life's too short for this shit and went to the pub and left me watching it. And she's not a misogynist. (laughs) Okay, well, I've seen a lot of bad films this year and I would have happily chosen Ghostbusters or Sausage Party or Hardcore Henry or Batman vs Superman. But I've chosen a film that makes them all look like Ridley Scott epics, Independence Day Resurgence. Not only 
did they take a beloved film and wipe their arse all over it. They blew an amazingly big budget on it as well to make it look that bad. The acting is probably the worst I've seen outside of a year four nativity. The score is dreary and dreadful. The CGI is terrible. And I found absolutely nothing appealing in the film whatsoever. And I'd rate it as probably my worst film of the decade, never mind this year. Harsh. Not that harsh. I mean, I didn't think it was great. We watched it the day we had our elderly pet rabbit put to sleep and we wanted a distraction. And it worked. It was a distraction. Looking back on it, it was just a rehash of the original film, which I don't rate that highly anyway, to be honest. But yeah, it was basically the same story again, with worse acting, no better CGI than the original, and just some bewildering performances from some of the characters in it as well. But to say worst film of the decade is, well, I think that's doing Sausage Party a disservice, to be honest. (laughs) Now, Simon, I know you don't feel so harshly against this film. Well, I do and I don't. I do in the fact that I agree with you with the acting is poor, but the story is just the same again. And I really liked the first Independence Day. I mean, Will Smith, it was when he was getting big and he played the character well. And there's nothing like that. The guy that's supposed to be a son, it just isn't the same. There isn't a strong character. Jeff Goldblum's really subdued in it. Doesn't look like he's that interested in it, to be honest, which probably isn't. It didn't have the impact of the first film. The thing with the alien ships coming over the cities and don't know what they're going to do and then they destroy them. That was just more excitement. I don't think it's as bad as the worst one of the decade, but I was just very, very disappointed in it. I still think Ghostbusters was worse, but it wasn't far behind it, to be honest. So we all agree that we've all watched some real bad films this year. Yeah. So as a group, we've put our heads together to decide which of those three films is the official Movie Muse worst film of the year. And Simon, do you want to announce the loser? Well, it's a tough choice there, Gordon, but I'm afraid the unanimous decision is Sausage Party. There we have it. Sausage Party is the worst film of 2016. And it's got food sex in it, and I still put it as the worst. (laughs) Yeah. I can't believe a film with a massive orgy in it is your worst of the year, so that (laughs) really does surprise me. Okay, let's move on then. Our next category looks back at the 2016 awards season. Whether you agree with their choices or not, the major awards ceremonies usually pick out some of the best movies, cast and crew of the previous year. And big winners this year were Pixar's Inside Out, which picked up the Best Animated Feature Award at the Oscars, BAFTAs and Golden Globes. Spotlight, which took the Best Picture and Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards and Critics' Choice Awards, and also the Best Screenplay Award at the BAFTAs. Ennio Morricone's score for The Hateful Eight claimed the Best Original Score award at all the major ceremonies, but the biggest winner of all was undoubtedly Alejandro Inarritu's gritty western The Revenant, which picked up 61 awards in total, including Best Picture at the BAFTAs and Golden Globes, Best Director in the Oscars, BAFTAs and Golden Globes, Best Cinematography at a number of ceremonies, and of course finally earned Leonardo DiCaprio his first Oscar at the sixth attempt, along with a Golden Globe and a BAFTA to sit alongside it. At the other end of the scale, the big loser at the annual Golden Raspberry Awards was Fifty Shades of Grey, which received five of the Notorious Awards. So the question is, which award given out in 2016 was the most deserved? And my choice for this was Mad Max Fury Road, which won Best Production Design, Best Costume Design and Best Makeup and Hairstyling at the Oscars and BAFTAs and countless other minor ceremonies as well. I wasn't a huge fan of the film, I found it a bit plotless and boring, but there's absolutely no argument that it looked fantastic and the design of the characters and vehicles was outlandish and ingenious, so fully deserved all those awards. Simon, 
There were some excellent films in the awards earlier in the year, and my favourite, the one I think stood out for me, was the Best Supporting Actor in the Golden Globe, and that's Sylvester Stallone in Creed. I think it encapsulated all what Rocky's about. He's older, and he's moved on from his days of being the hard man, and just his empathy, the way he gets diagnosed with his illness, and the way it's dealt with. I think Sylvester Stallone was absolutely excellent. And it really, really stood out for me. I only watched Creed a couple of weeks ago and it just really made the film. And I thought he definitely deserved that award. And what award are you going for, Gordon? Well, there's no surprise with my Sylvester Stallone loving that I've also gone for Stallone with his Best Supporting Actor for Creed. Despite being the all-time leader in the list of Golden Raspberries for his acting and screenwriting work, Stallone has actually had his fair share of big hits. But the big awards that have been bestowed on his biggest hits have always gone to the director or production team. So I was absolutely over the moon when the Golden Globes honoured him as Rocky Balboa, the ageing trainer in the spin-off Creed. Many believe that the film should have had more awards or at least more nominations for the scriptwriter and the director at least. But the way Stallone transitioned Balboa from the hopelessly optimistic and naive boxer of the early Rocky films to the world-weary, browbeaten trainer. It's a fantastic way to show his detractors that he's more than just a mumbling punch drunk has been. So much so that the Golden Raspberry Committee, they felt that Stallone's performance was enough to transition from the all-time Razzie champ to a bona fide award contender. So, yo sly, you did it! I was also considering that same award for Stallone. Back when we talked about that film on one of our podcasts, I did say I wasn't sure whether he deserved that award, the Golden Globe that is, but since watching the film again recently, I've come around to the idea that he really does put in an excellent performance as the ageing Rocky, and I'm hoping that another Creed film will be made and he'll put in another appearance, although I fear for his future if that series does progress much further. So I think that pretty much confirms that the most deserved award winner of 2016 was Sylvester Stallone. He can add that to his Best Action Hero title that we awarded him earlier in the year. The Movie Muse team watch a lot of films, but it's inevitable that there are a lot of films that on first release they pass us by. And some films, like The French Connection, for example, for me, pass us by by about 40 years before we finally get around to watching them. So this category is our opportunity to call out the best film that we've seen this year that isn't new to cinema, it's just new to us. So Matt, why don't you tell us the best film you saw for the first time in 2016? Okay, my pick is going to be the 2011 home invasion thriller You're Next, which I've talked about on previous podcasts, but there's nothing better than watching a film that you're not expecting anything from, and it totally surprises you by being brilliant, and this film was certainly that. It starts like any other film of this type. A family and their significant others get together at a secluded house, and just as they're sitting down to dinner, they're attacked by mass assailants. But what the bad guys didn't count on in this film is that one of the intended victims is rather more resourceful than the invaders bargained for, and she soon starts to turn the tables on them in a variety of ingenious ways. The acting is reasonably good, it's nothing spectacular, but the real thing that I enjoyed was the shock of the death scenes and the black humour that really made it stand out from the other films in this genre. Particularly of note, one of the characters tries to escape from the house and the assailants have put this wire across the door and she basically slashes her own throat by running into it really quickly. There's also a moment where the resourceful lady in the house kills one of the assailants with a blender. And there's another moment where the home invaders are trying to get in through the window and she puts out a row of nails nailed into a board. And it just reminded me of like an R-rated home alone in that moment. It was like the guys are trying to get in and she's fending them off with all these ingenious methods. So yeah, really big surprise to me. I hadn't heard much about it before I watched it, just recorded it off the TV and absolutely loved it. 
yep two thumbs up from me on that one as well i love a good home invasion thriller and that was a really good one simon what about you well, following on from Sebastian Stone being in Creed, a film I haven't seen before, I only watched this year for the first time, is his reboot of the Rambo series in 2008. I was pleasantly surprised. It was a really enjoyable action film. He plays his character Rambo very like he does in the past, but obviously being older, he's stepped away from his violent past, and then he gets drawn back into it even though he doesn't want to. The violence is necessary, the settings are good, it's just a jungle again, and Rambo goes back to what he does best, and it was absolutely superb. I really enjoyed the film. It just encapsulates all that Rambo's about, and I think it was a worthy follow-up to the earlier films. He didn't want to do it, but he felt he had to do it, and I just think it's amazingly poignant, because it's also his past coming back to haunt him again, but he does what he does right, and he actually rescues the people and kills all the bad guys, which is what you want. Another excellent choice, yeah. Can't believe it's eight years old, that film, already. Indeed. I liked him in the earlier Rocky as well, 2006 Rocky, but that was another good film. So I watched these two together for our action hero podcast, and I like that Rocky as well, so I think I just enjoyed Rambo that bit more at the time. Well, having watched 300 films this year and at least three quarters of them being not released this year, I've got a massive list of films I could have chosen, including one of our WAG's choices, American History X, Arnie's Zombie Creeper Maggie, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight in Midnight Cowboy. They all came very close, but I've decided to be all arty-farty and choose Ingmar Bergman's 1957 existential drama, The Seventh Seal. Set in Sweden during the Black Death, it's the story of a medieval knight's journey of self-discovery and a game of chess that he plays against death who's come to take his soul. And the film is funny, sad and really made me think about the nature of our existence on this beautiful planet. It's also the inspiration for one of the best scenes in one of my favourite films, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where the boys compete against death in a number of different board games. And The Seven Seal is an absolute all-time classic. Let's move on now and take a look back at what we've been watching on the small screen. Assuming you could avoid the abundance of reality shows and talent contests, 2016 was another great year for episodic TV. Established US shows such as Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead continue to draw huge numbers of viewers, although the latter lost the plot a little bit in its latest season. There was a rise in top quality shows on streaming services such as Stranger Things on Netflix and The Man in the High Castle on Amazon Prime. And close to home there were some highly rated British offerings such as The Missing, Peaky Blinders and The Night Manager. New TV shows based on classic movies were a big thing this year with the likes of From Dusk Till Dawn, Scream and most notably Westworld. And the DC and Marvel Universe continued to invade the small screen in Gotham, Daredevil, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Legends of Tomorrow and countless others. We also witnessed the return of some beloved shows including Cold Feet, The X-Files and Red Dwarf. So the question here, what was your favourite TV show of 2016? Either a brand new show or a new series? Simon? I'm afraid I'm going to be pretty, pretty boring as usual, but for me it was the new Red Dwarf. You know, you always wait with trepidation for something like Red Dwarf to come back and we've had some letdowns in the past, but the series 11 was really good. There was a hit and miss with some of the episodes, but I think on the whole it was a strong performance, brought back some good writing, some good one-liners, some good stories. I just thought it was a good addition to the series and I was really happy to see them back. So it's a bit of nostalgia, but I also generally did enjoy them. It wasn't just because I like Red Dwarf. That was for me the highlight of my TV for 2016 yeah i agree it was better than expected i think by a lot of people including myself certainly some laughs not so much in some of the episodes but definitely some of the episodes were entertaining and the ones that weren't funny particularly still had some good kind of sci-fi plots to them so i enjoyed it as well 
Yeah, me too. I mean, we're all big Red Dwarf fans, as you can tell if you listen to the Red Dwarf podcast we did. So yeah, it was definitely a return to form, so I was very happy with that. So what's your pick, Gordon? Well, on one of the earlier shows, on a coming soon, we discussed Westworld, and we all commented that the advancements in AI and VR technology make it the perfect time to be resurrecting the animatronic theme park western. But having seen the full season now, it's safe to say that it exceeded all of my expectations. The film it's based on has aged extremely badly, but the TV show took a really different tack, and instead of the confined limits of the Westworld park of the film, the TV series expanded on a huge scale with canyons, wilderness, multiple towns, loads of varied storylines intertwining, many not making sense at all until revelations further down the line. The cast was superb throughout, but I'd especially call out Tandy Newton as the brothel madam Maeve who dreams of breaking her programming. She played the motherly protector of her girls, but then also the vicious insurgent with equal skill. And I would certainly hope that she picks up some awards in the Golden Globes or other TV award ceremonies. The show's twists and branching stories kept me engaged throughout, and I'm genuinely excited for the second series. So I think it's the most exciting TV I've seen in a long time. So there was absolutely no doubt Westworld was my number one. I've seen Westworld and I agree with a lot about what you said. Certainly it looked fantastic. There was some great acting across the board and the concepts that they were dealing with were interesting all that kind of thing. I found every episode interesting but at the end of every episode I was never thinking I can't wait to watch the next episode. There was just something about it that didn't quite click for me. I will carry on watching it and I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on it but I don't know I'm not 100% convinced that I fully enjoyed it. Another show that I definitely did enjoy was the sort of tribute to Spielberg-inspired 80s movies, which was Stranger Things. But my favourite show of 2016 was Better Call Saul, specifically season two, although I did watch both the first and second season in 2016. The first season I thought was a bit slow to begin with, but was getting really interesting by the end. And the second season continued that and had some really, really enjoyable episodes, be they funny or more serious episodes. What I love about it is that they took two fairly minor characters from Breaking Bad and made a new story around them, which is set in the same world, the same town, but a different point in time, an earlier point in time. And you're gradually being exposed to the chain of events that turn Jimmy McGill from a flawed but well-meaning public defender into this sleazy lawyer that we know from Breaking Bad as Saul Goodman. And his relationship with his brother is the core of the story, and both Bob Odenkirk, who plays Jimmy, and Michael McKean, who plays his brother, both superb in every scene that the two characters share i also love Rhea seahorn's character who acts as jimmy's moral compass and love interest and the fact that you sympathize with a character that you know is going to become a complete scumbag is really clever so far i think it's been a brilliant series and i think i even like it more than breaking bad which is a bold claim considering how good that was the funny thing is 2015 my favorite tv show was better call Saul. i love that first series and i wouldn't hesitate in saying i liked that series better than every series of breaking bad but i haven't watched series two i loved the first series so much but i just haven't brought myself to watch the second and that seems a bit strange to me that maybe it was a point in time single series for me and and i might have lost that kind of desire for it but i really need to give that second series a go because i haven't even seen a trailer or a clip or anything of the second series no idea where the stories go so i think that now that westworld has ended that needs to be my next tv show yeah and it's only 10 episodes so it doesn't take up a lot of your time and it's definitely good binge watching fodder and i thought it was brilliant there's been some good shows on this year and i think that just pipped it for me 
Okay, to round out our best and worst of 2016, we're all going to give our top three films of the year in totality. And to give you a bit of an idea, I've had a look through some of the movie websites and magazines to find out what other people have picked as their best film of the year. The Guardian picked Animalisa, the animated film that I've already mentioned. Games Radar went for Rogue One. Rotten Tomatoes. I was quite surprised that the best rated film on Rotten Tomatoes for 2016 is Zootopia. The BFI, for some reason, in their top five, the British Film Institute picked four films that aren't released until 2017 in Britain in their top films of 2016, which really didn't help. But the highest grossing film of the year was Captain America Civil War. So there you go. That's just a little bit of food for thought. So Matt, what are your best films? It's funny you should mention about the BFI picking films from 2017 in their 2016 list because one of the films in my 2016 list was actually released in 2015 but it didn't come out until January in 2016 in the UK and that's Creed which we mentioned earlier but it's a well-written and well-directed film that has the spirit of a Rocky film with plenty of modern twists. I thought the leads were very good but the story is really anchored by a deservedly award-winning performance by Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa and despite the name of the film it really is still Rocky's film. And in second place, a film that I've already talked about at length, so I won't go into too much detail. One of the surprising films of the year for me, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. A good news story from J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. And I think the writers of Rogue One could learn a lesson in how to introduce new characters and make them immediately engaging from this film. It wasn't perfect, but I really enjoyed it. And my number one film, which you've also just mentioned, was Captain America Civil War, the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film to date. And we've talked about that earlier, so I won't go into more detail about that either. Okay, thank you. Simon? Right, my third best film this year is the science fiction psychological thriller 10 Cloverfield Lane. My second favourite film, what you talked about already, which is Star Wars Rogue One. And my film of 2016 is the biographical sports comedy drama Eddie the Eagle. I just found it a really feel-good film. It captures what you would think happened to the real Eddie the Eagle and how he fought his way to compete at the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics. And it just had such a good feel to it. You were really rooting for him and it was fantastic. A bit like the real Eddie Edwards, so that was really good. Okay, great. Thanks for that. I think my top three aren't quite as mainstream as your choices, which is probably not a surprise. But in third place, I've gone for The Shallows, starring Blake Lively. It's a kind of shark thriller. But what I found really good about this, apart from the absolutely fantastic cinematography, is it's all pretty much set on a rock. And that's basically your location. And you've got, for at least an hour of the film, you've got one girl and one seagull on one rock with a shark. And they managed to turn it into a really, really good and tense thriller. I think it's one of the best and more serious shark films I've seen since probably Jaws 2. So The Shallows, I thought, was fantastic. In second place, I went for Victoria. It's a two-hour-long single shot. So it's the kind of film where you set the camera rolling and you can't mess up for two hours. So technically, it's an absolutely amazing achievement especially because it's not a single location. You know, the camera moves a lot around Berlin. It's a really engaging story as well. So Victoria is my second favourite film of the year. And my first favourite is Ken Loach's social drama, I, Daniel Blake. It's absolutely heartbreaking tale of how the welfare state is broken. And it tells the story of a man who has had heart problems. His doctor tells him he can't work, but the social tell him he's got to look for work and won't give him any incapacity benefit. So he's basically 
basically unable to obtain money and he's just in this spiral and then he meets a young girl who can't feed her kids and it just sounds really depressing but there's some really good humour in it just like most Ken Loach films it's got lots of good humour some of the bits you can see are really manufactured to pull at the heartstrings but not to an extent where you feel manipulated so I Daniel Blake definitely my number one film of the year so to come up with our official Movie Muse best film of 2016, we decided to put together a list of all of the films that at least three of the Movie Muse team have seen. So we picked our 10 best films that we've all seen. We all voted on them and we came up with uh, top three. So Matt, do you want to give us the rundown? Yeah, certainly. So all of these films have already been mentioned in our review, unsurprisingly. In third place was Eddie the Eagle. Second place was Rogue One. And our winner this year was Captain America Civil War, which, as we've already mentioned, was also the highest grossing film of the year. Our penultimate category is more sombre as we look back at some of the many stars of big and small screen that have passed away in 2016. Over 200 names from the film industry have been taken in a particularly shocking year for celebrity deaths. So we're going to pick one notable person that passed away that means something to us and give a small tribute to them. But today, as we're recording the podcast, we've learned the tragic news that Carrie Fisher has sadly passed away today following complications from a heart attack suffered a few days ago. This is very raw to us. We're all, obviously, as you've heard from earlier in the show, Star Wars fans and the words we can say right at this point are quite hard to put into words, really, because it's such a sudden and shocking thing. She's 60 years old, so not particularly old, obviously. She'll always be best known to us for Princess Leia, but she also had roles in films such as the blues brothers which i thought she was excellent in she also wrote several books which were semi-autobiographical most notably postcards from the edge which was made into a film of the same name so carrie fisher will be sadly missed by us all she will be in star wars episode 8 she has filmed her scenes for that so we'll look forward to seeing her in that which will presumably be her final role i actually met her so it was more poignant really she's a really nice lady to talk to it's a bit crazy, but you know, it's actors for you and actresses, so you know, it's on to meet her, and it's very sad. Yeah, very sad indeed. Let's now move on to our pre-planned In Memoriam, where we'll each talk about somebody that meant something to us who sadly passed away this year. Simon, do you want to go first? After a year of amazing amount of sad deaths in the film and music industry, the person that, he wasn't a young guy, but he is in a series that I watch all the time and it meant a lot to me. And the lead actor in this series died just after it ended years ago. So this is the next sort of big death from the series. The series I love is Father Ted and Frank Kelly, who played Father Jack Hackett, passed away this year. And it's just from a series that I love so much, it's always sad to see one of your favourite characters and the actor who played him passing away. He obviously is known as being a really obnoxious alcoholic priest, but plays the character absolutely superb. He wouldn't even think when you saw him in himself being interviewed, he just couldn't connect that that was the same guy. And he just played it so well. Being Irish myself, I know exactly how the priesthood is in Ireland, and that's how he comes across it very excellently played. And it'll always be there for just the words feck, arse and girls. Oh, and drink. So yeah, sad loss, but his notoriety will live on. Gordon, who's your pick? I've gone to the other side of the pond and I've chosen Gary Shandling. 
He began his career in entertainment as a comedy writer in the 70s, working on a number of American sitcoms. But it was only after he was critically injured in a car crash in 1977 that he used his recovery time to write some stand-up comedy routines and successfully transitioned to the stage, getting his big break with an appearance on The Tonight Show in 1981. And he'd soon become a regular on that show and a popular guest for the next five years. He then wrote and starred in the heavily autobiographical It's the Gary Shandling Show. And that's something that I used to watch on BBC Two, I think. It was one of those shows that was always on late, so you got in from the pub, or I think it was just when I was transitioning from playing football with my mates to sneaking into the pub. So I used to love the Gary Shandling show. But his biggest hit was the Larry Sanders show, where he put his experiences on The Tonight Show to good use when he parodied the shenanigans of a late-night chat show host. Shandling also played a number of supporting roles in movies. Many of them were voice roles because he had a really, really distinctive voice. But his role as Senator Stern in Iron Man 2 and Captain America the Winter Soldier also brought his face back onto the big screen. He died at the age of 66 on March 24th after a massive heart attack. And I definitely think that he's somebody who most people won't really remember or know about because he's very much an American stalwart. But I really loved Gary Shandling and he's definitely missed. Okay, thank you. Gordon. My choice is Anton Yelchin. When movie stars die young, it's often due to their own misadventure, but to be killed in a freak accident crushed by your own car in your own driveway is obviously far more tragic. Born in Russia but raised in the USA, Yelchin made his first movie appearance at the age of 10 in A Man Is Mostly Water. Early acclaim came for his role in 2001's Hearts in Atlantis and was followed by notable performances in Alpha Dog and Charlie Bartlett. He became a household name following his first appearance as Pavel Chekhov in the 2009 reboot of Star Trek and went on to play the teenage Kyle Reese in Terminator Salvation and Charlie Brewster in the remake of Fright Night. As well as reprising the role of Chekhov in two more Star Trek films, he continued to take on roles in smaller films such as Rudderless, Odd Thomas and Green Room and also provided voice acting performances to animated films such as The Smurfs. He died at the age of 27 and has the unwelcome distinction of being outlived by the man who played Chekhov in the original Star Trek series, Walter Koenig. Producers of the Star Trek films have confirmed his role will not be recast and Chekhov will be written out of future installments as a tribute to him. Certainly, I think the young name to have died this year in a real tragedy yeah definitely i remember watching green room earlier in the year before he died and thinking what a mature performance he puts in in a lead role in that film so it was quite shocking to hear that he died yeah promising and seemingly a nice guy as well to be killed in a freak accident at that age is pretty devastating really thanks mark now that year is at an end the movie news team now take a look at what the world and film has in store for us in 2017 in the pipeline we have some quite big franchises that are getting either reboots or sequels we've got a film based on chips the tv cop show from the 70s which will be interesting guardians of the galaxy's second part coming out a new alien film alien covenant the new pirates of the caribbean dead men tell no tales that's obviously going to be quite popular there's an animated film called captain underpants which sounds good to me already we've got a film based on baywatch cars 3 is in the pipeline a new transformers film the last night couple of lego films a lego batman film and a lego ninjago film another big blockbuster blade runner 2049 is due to come out next year friday the 13th another film based on that obviously star wars episode 8 is penciled in for december next year and there's even my little pony the movie i mean you couldn't ask for better than that 
But my choice, what I'm looking forward to, is coming out very early in 2017, and that is the second train spotting movie. It's directed by Danny Boyle and based on the character by Irving Welsh. It's going to have the original cast of Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, Robert Carlyle, all appearing in it again. And I'm hoping like Independence Day, it's not going to be a disappointment, but hopefully just more of the same. They've all moved on and the story continues. So train spotting is definitely the one I'm looking forward to. But on that note, Gordon, out of the list of films coming out next year, what are you looking forward to? Well, I very nearly chose Blade Runner 2049 because Blade Runner being one of my favourite films of all time, I am really excited for it. But the reason I didn't pick it is I'm actually quite concerned it's going to be crap. It's one of them films that I'm not sure you should be going back to. I'm not sure you can get that same atmosphere again. So I'm a little wary of that film, even though I'll be there on opening night to see it. What I've gone for instead is another film series that's been mentioned many times on this show, and that's Planet of the Apes. So I'm really looking forward to walking the Planet of the Apes because I've been impressed with how they've built the story up over the last two episodes. And I think this third film looks from the trailer to be a proper step change where we see the apes start to take over the planet. And I can see the franchise running for some time to come. They seem to be moving into this really good kind of gritty battle between the apes and the humans. So, yeah, I'm really excited for that. Thanks, G. Matt, what's got you going for the next year? Well, there's plenty that's got me excited for next year. On paper, like you say, there's loads of good stuff, and a lot of the ones you mentioned, including War of the Planet of the Apes, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Alien Covenant, and obviously Star Wars Episode 8, are all on my must-watch list. I should mention that it looks like Disney are going to completely dominate the box office again in 2017, with three Marvel films, the Star Wars film, two Pixar films, and presumably three or four of their own films as well. So, no doubt they're going to be taking on numerous billions of dollars from the box office the one i've picked i knew they were making one but i didn't know it was coming out in 2017 is spider-man homecoming saw the first trailer recently and as i mentioned earlier tom holland's debut in captain america civil war was one of the highlights of the film and he looks to have the awkward nerdy qualities that made toby Maguire such a good peter parker it looks from the trailer like there'll be plenty of humor in the film and that the spidey that we see will be far from the finished article i also noticed it's directed by john watts who directed one of our film club films cop car which we all enjoyed so hopefully he'll add a bit of the indie grit to what will otherwise be big budget flashiness and the fact that iron man is involved means my two favorite marvel heroes will get plenty of screen time and this is definitely gonna be one of my must watch films for the new year yeah i'm looking forward to that one especially because the last three spider-man films have been really disappointing but this looks like it could be a proper return to form yeah okay that's it for our end of year review Normal service will be resumed when the Movie Muse team return with a nuclear-themed episode in January. Don't forget to join in by watching our film club pick, the 1957 monster flick Them, or the small-town post-apocalyptic TV drama Jericho. And check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for more information about the soundtrack and video game choices for that episode. As the clock in the Movie Muse Towers chimes goodbye to 2016 and ticks slowly into 2017, there's only one thing left to do. So link arms, everyone, and let's have one last chorus. Oh.